Good morning and welcome to City Bible Church. If you're watching this pre-recorded sermon, it means that you were not able to join us at our in-person uh, Sunday morning gathering in the parking lot of the Gems Building in the downtown LA, Little Tokyo area, and on Sundays at 10 a.m. And it also means that you were not able to join us on our City Bible Church Facebook page for that broadcast of that service or our City Bible Church YouTube channel for the broadcast of the service. But nonetheless, we welcome you here. Our church has been in a series called The Church as Diaspora, where we've been looking at how the early church, when she was disrupted and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, how she moved and what we can learn from that for uh, the church in the 21st century. And we've been looking at uh, the letter of Acts, from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 20, where uh, the early church moved to advance the kingdom of God, to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem into the Judean and Samarian regions and into the ends of the earth. And so uh, the past few weeks, we've been looking at how the early church really laid the foundation for what it means to be the church. And I think it's very important for us to learn from that here in the 21st century. A few weeks ago, we saw how in the Judean and Samarian region, the focus was on evangelism and how God opens up doors for us to share the gospel in a spontaneous way led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how uh, Paul and his second missionary team went on the road to Macedonia and uh, how through a theology of movement, they took a step forward towards God and let him redirect their path. And we can learn from that as we move forward as a church. Last week, we looked at how the gospel moved to the city of Philippi, which is in modern day Greece, and how through the context of prayer, uh, people were won to Christ. Uh, the early church faced um, persecution. They faced opposition and distraction through the gospel, but it was through an environment of prayer that the early church prevailed. And so a lot of these foundational um, experiences and learnings and teachings about evangelism and movement and prayer uh, are very important for us to, to remember here in the 21st century as we move forward in our own diaspora experience. And today we're going to look and we're going to focus on how the church went southward from Philippi to Thessalonica and how a new church was born there and how the Apostle Paul focused his early ministry at Thessalonica on how Christ had to suffer through his crucifixion and he had to rise again through his resurrection. And so uh, very important because this theme of, of death and this theme of life is something that all of us are thinking about here today during the coronavirus event as we see social unrest in our society. Uh, this past week, uh, I got a call from, from hospice. My mother, as many of you know, has been uh, incapacitated for almost the past six years from uh, her second major stroke. And hospice called me this week saying that they believe that my mother um, has begun her final decline and she may not have a lot longer to live. And so I'm obviously thinking a lot about death and life. I went to go visit her um, on Friday, spent about three hours with her, just praying for her, reading her scriptures, mostly from the Psalms, and just um, talking with her about you know our, our life together in the past and just assuring her that the Lord is going to walk with her through this time. But death and life is a very important topic. We're talking about that as a society. Um, many of us are, are dealing with that personally. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at passage from Acts chapter 17, 
verse 1 through 9. And uh, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Thessalonica. And so if, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. And we'll go ahead and read that together now. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the civil authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Uh, before we get into a uh, central focus of this passage, let's take a moment to look at the background behind what's happening here and also to summarize uh, what we've just read. Uh, so let's take a look at the background, what's happening. Uh, Paul and his missionary team of Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey, and they're going out through the region of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. They um, have just come from Philippi, a city to um, the north and the east of Thessalonica. And uh, in this ministry, as they left Philippi, Timothy and Luke are left back in Philippi, probably because they were Gentiles, had Roman citizenship, could have ministered in a way that Paul and Silas could not have, uh, being Jewish. And uh Paul and Silas are sent away, probably because it wasn't safe for them to remain in Philippi while Timothy and Luke stayed in Philippi. And they go to the uh, southward to a city of Amphipolis, about 30 miles uh, south. And then they go another day's journey, about 30 miles southeastern, southwestern to Apollonia. Um, and then another 30 miles after that to Thessalonica. So that's about 30 miles a day, and they probably were on horseback. It would have been hard to believe that after they received the beating that they did in Philippi, they could have just walked maybe 100 miles uh, within that time span. And they were, um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, um, they were bigger cities than Thessalonica, but apparently there was not a Jewish synagogue there. And so um, uh, probably the Philippi brothers felt it was safer for them to go down to Thessalonica. And it says in verse 1 of our passage that they made their way to Thessalonica because, and there was a synagogue there. Now remember, you needed at least two, 10 Jewish heads of household to form a Jewish synagogue. And so there was some kind of Jewish community there. And this was Paul's pattern of ministry, that when he would go into a city to minister, to evangelize, to make disciples, to share the gospel, he would look for the Jewish synagogue and then go preach there. And this was his pattern when he was converted and he went back to Damascus. He ministered in the synagogue in the book of Acts earlier. Uh, it was his pattern in his first missionary journey 
when he went to the uh, island of Cyprus, and then he went to the mainland Turkey, modern-day Turkey, to the cities of Antioch, of Pisidian, and Iconium, he found the synagogues there first. And it's certainly in his pattern on his second missionary journey here as he goes to Thessalonica, he finds a synagogue, and it, as we uh, see in the weeks to come, when he goes to Berea, he goes to Athens, he goes uh, uh, rather to uh, Corinth and, and Ephesus as well, he finds the synagogue. And uh, this was his pattern of ministry. And so um, when he's going to Berea and Corinth and Athens beyond this. In verse 2, it says, When he went to the synagogue, that he reasoned with the Jews. And, uh, and later on with the Greeks. And this word reason came from the Greek word dialegomai, uh, dialegomai, from where we get the English word dialogue. And so Paul wasn't necessarily just preaching like I am giving a message. He's probably dialoguing, going back and forth in a Q&A sort of manner, teaching, asking for questions, dialoguing with people. And he was dialoguing with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, and what was he doing in verse 3? He was explaining, which meant he was opening up their eyes. The Holy Spirit was opening up their eyes through his teaching. And he was proving, which meant to provide evidence to them, why the Christ, why Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Verse 4, it then goes on to say that some Jews were there. They believed. Um, there were many Greeks that believed, among them uh, many leading women um, and so there was fruit there. There was uh, people who came to faith. And then verse 5 through 9, there were Jews that were uh, unbelieving Jews that were jealous of Paul's ministry as they were jealous of Jesus's ministry um, you know, when uh, he walked the earth. And so they created a, a mob and they put all these false accusations against them that they were creating an uproar. And uh, there was a charge that was put against Paul and Silas, which is they are declaring another king other than Caesar, that they were saying Jesus is king, not Caesar, which was true. Uh, but in the Roman law, that was uh, an offense that was worthy of execution. And so uh, that was uh, one of the reasons why Jesus himself was executed under Roman law. And so uh, they, inside a crowd, a mob, they go to this house of a man named Jason, where Paul and his companions were, I guess, supposedly staying at, but they weren't there. And then uh, they, Jason had to put up money, saying that they won't be here anymore. And then Paul and his uh, missionary team ended up leaving the city. And that is essentially what happened in these nine verses. Now, there's a main point that Paul is making to the, Thessalon uh, the church at Thessalonica, which it says that he, would re uh, he was there for... Um, three Sabbaths, maybe it was a little bit longer than that, maybe this, that's just the Sabbaths that he ministered in, and, uh, but he might have been there a little bit longer. But he focused, it says in, again in verse 3, he says, why it was necessary for Christ to suffer, for him to be crucified, and Christ to rise from the dead and to be resurrected, and it was this, this crucifixion, this resurrection of Christ that Paul was trying to prove and to reason with them and to explain to them. And um, this is a central focus of Jesus's ministry, as well as Paul and the other apostles' ministry, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself and his subsequent uh, resurrection. Uh, Jesus said three times, at least three times to his disciples in the Gospels, that he was going to be delivered up, he was going to be put to death, 
and he was going to rise again on the third day. And he said that over and over again uh, to warn them and to tell them what was going to happen. Jesus went on to say that um, in the future, the good will be resurrected to life and the evil will be resurrected to judgment. When you look at the Apostle Paul in his ministry, uh, he said he preached Christ and him crucified. Paul said that uh, if we who have faith in Christ, uh, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Paul went on to say that our hope is in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. It goes on to say in the book of Acts that the other apostles testified of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look at the other apostles and their letters, uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, Peter, John, they all talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is, raises a major question for us here this morning. Why is it necessary that Christ suffered, that he was crucified? Why is it necessary that he ro- rose from the dead and that he was resurrected? And what I want to do is, it says that Paul, um, he dialogued with them, he proved he uh, to them, and he gave evidence from the scriptures, the necessity of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And what I want to do is I want to uh, reconstruct what Paul probably said. We don't have all the details here, but we can get a pretty good idea from the themes of the Old Testament that Paul would have been drawing upon, as well as what Paul also focuses on um, in his testimony in the book of Acts, as well as his epistles, about what Paul would have said as he reasoned and explained with them about the necessity of the crucifixion and resurrection. So I want to talk about um, the necessity of uh, why Christ had to suffer and what Paul would probably have said back then, as well as what he might have said today, um, as well as what he might have said back then on the resurrection and what he might say today. So let's look first at the crucifixion. Why did Christ, was it, why was it necessary that Christ had to suffer? And what might Paul have said back then? I think what Paul would have done as he entered the synagogue and he spoke to the Jews is he would have focused on the topics that um, are, are, are central to the Old Testament and central to his teachings in the New Testament, which is the topics of the law, the topic of sin, the topic of sacrifice or atonement for sin. The topic of having a a changed nature, a new heart, and through that, a Messiah that makes that all possible. And so let's take a moment to kind of imagine, to reconstruct what Paul might have said to those early Jews back then when he reasoned and proved and gave evidence for why Christ had to suffer. I think Paul would have gone into the synagogue and based upon his testimony in the book of Acts and his writings in the the, uh, New Testament, he would have said, Um, My brothers, my Jewish brothers, we have been given the law. We have been given the Torah. We've been given these first five books of the Old Testament. And um, this has been given to us by Moses, our forefather Moses. And it's been expounded upon uh, in the Psalms and the Proverbs. We have had the law that has God, Yahweh has revealed to us. The living God has revealed to us as a people his law and how we are to obey him, how we are to honor him, how we are to have life, what defines right from wrong, good from evil, the truth from the lie. And this law has given us um, a way of, of understanding morality. 
It has given us an understanding of how we are to have civil laws between each other. It has given us an understanding of how we are to have ceremonial laws between us and our and, and, and Yahweh. And so Paul would have reminded them of the Old Testament law, what they all share together, what binds them together as a people. And then he would have talked about, most likely, how we have been unable as a people to keep that law. We have sin in our hearts. And he would have used phrases like, we have transgressed against the law. He would have given example after example of how God's people have repeatedly disobeyed him uh, and transgressed his laws. He would have talked about how sin uh, is a burden has been a burden upon them as a people, a, a weight that they cannot bear. He would have talked about how sin has stained them as a people, stained them spiritually, stained them as ancient Israel, as the Jews. He would have talked about how sin is a great debt that cannot be repaid. And they would have all understood that, knowing their history as a people, that there was a law and they have all repeatedly throughout their history and personally, as well as Paul, sinned against that law. I think, thirdly, Paul would have talked about the importance of sacrifice for sin, atonement for sin. And he would have said that God had made provisions for us to sacrifice animals, goats, um, lambs, bulls, pigeons, uh, to offer up grain offerings. And why? It's so that uh, we will obey God's law in doing this, we will offer up an appeasement, an offer up an offering so that God may forgive us as a people. Um, we, we may appeal to him and, uh, and to recognize our need for him, our sinfulness before him. And I think Paul would have emphasized that this pattern of God's people having his law, us sinning against that law, us having to sac- offer up sacrifices for it, has not really worked for the past 1,400 years in terms of changing the human heart. There had been 14 years or so since Moses gave them the law, and for 1,400 years, they would obey sometimes, then they would disobey for long periods of time, and they would be punished by God, um, and then they would come to God for forgiveness, he would forgive, and then they would repeat and rinse the same cycle over and over again. And now at this point, as Paul's ministering in the first century, they have come to a place where essentially much of their religion is just an empty shell. It's just empty religion. It's just ritual. It's not really changing anyone's heart, the Jewish religion. And he would have probably reminded them that we have not been able to fulfill the prayers that we are to pray in the morning and and at night, the Shema, the Jewish Shema that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all of, with your soul, with all of your strength. And you shall teach his commandments to your children. You should put them on your doorposts. You should talk about his commandments on the way. You shall put them on your clothing and you shall obey the Lord your God. And he would remind them that they have not been able to live the Shema because their hearts have not been changed. But he would have offered them hope. He would have said, now remember my brothers. That God, our Father, has promised us through the prophets, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He said that um, I will give you a, a new law for your hearts. You will be my people. I will forgive your iniquities. I will remember your sin no more. I will give you, God says in Jeremiah 31, a new heart. I will write my law on your hearts. Paul would have reminded them not only of Jeremiah, he would remind them of Ezekiel. 
When Ezekiel says in chapter 36, God speaks and he says um, that he will sprinkle their hearts with clean water. They will be um, uh, cleansed of the uncleanness, cleansed of idolatry, and God will give them a new heart. He will put his spirit in them and they will obey his statutes and rules. And so Paul would have appealed to them from the Old Testament scriptures in the law, sin, sacrifice, the hope of a new heart, and the futility of not having it without a Messiah. And this is where Paul would have uh, revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And he would have used the Old Testament scripture, probably like Isaiah 53, where he says, um, We are all like sheep have go- who have gone astray. We have turned each one of us our own way. That's the law. Isaiah 53 again says, he has numbered our transgressions. He has bore the sins of many. That's sin. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, he says, again, in Isaiah 53, uh, he, Jesus would have been pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's Jesus taking the sacrifice for our sins. And finally, Again, Isaiah 53, upon him, Jesus, the chastisement that was brought, uh, that came to him, the chastisement came to him has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the kind of argument that Paul would have made. It, would, would, it persuaded Jews, it persuaded Greeks to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And I think today, part of the question is, um, how would we be persuaded? What evidence would it take? to understand our need for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I mean, we live in a society today that uh, we know that we need the law. I mean, we need law and order, but we have real questions about who administers that law and order and if we can trust them. So uh, we have questions about interpretations of the law. Uh, We um, don't like the idea that there is one law, one moral law, one moral truth, one spiritual truth that is applied by one God to all of humanity. I think that's why you see so many people today who say, I'm done with organized religion. I'm done with um, the dogma that comes from some kind of sacred text. I'm just going to be spiritual on my own. I think I'm good on my own, but I'm not into organized religion. I'm spiritual. I'm good. I'm just not religious. And I think that's a rebellion against the idea that there is this one central law today. I think the idea of sin today has um, been uh, so convoluted, we can't even recognize it anymore. I mean, we don't call sin, sin anymore in our society, do we? Uh, We call it a disease. We call it an area of growth. We call it um, our human shortcomings. We call it our mistakes. Um, two studies have shown that today, two out of every three people essentially believe that they're just good people in God's eyes, if they even believe in God. And we don't talk about sin in the ways the Bible talks about sin. We talk about it in these anesthetized, uh, pseudo-psychological ways that make it a little bit easier for us to digest. Um, and what about the idea of sacrifice uh, and a Messiah that's needed for that? They, they say that 50, the majority of Americans today, whether they call themselves Christians or not, 52%, I just saw a poll that was done this past summer by Ligonier Ministries, said 52% of Americans just believe that Jesus was a great teacher. He was not a Messiah for us. 
And I think this begs the question of, at what point do you believe that you need the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in your life? Do you, that you need the work of the crucifixion of Christ in your life? At what point do you believe that Christ needed to suffer on the cross? Um, at what point has death become real to you, that Christ had to suffer for that? At what point um, do we realize that death lives in us? And the only way to escape that, uh, a world that's passing away in front of us, is someone dying for us to take on death, to take on the penalty of death that lives in us and will eventually come to all of us. At what point is it important that someone died for our sins and fulfilled the law that God has? At what point does the crucifixion and the suffering of Christ become real to you? And I would argue that today, um, the point at which it becomes real to us, our need for Jesus' death on the cross so that we um, he, we, our sins may be forgiven and atoned for. At the, what point that becomes real is when we recognize that the death inside of us, our pride, our greed, our foolishness, our lust, our hatred for one another, um, that that doesn't go away. That that actually has to be killed in us. Not killing ourselves in terms of our lives on our own, but that has to be spiritually put to death. And no matter what we do, no matter how much we meditate, no matter how much we um, try and think positive thoughts, no matter how much we um, try and go to any number one of spiritual experiences or just kind of uh, sweep it under the rug and say, I'm just going to try and be a good person, we still realize that our heart never changes. And it's producing death in our character spiritually. And there will come a point when... Um, Death will become real to you. If it's not inside, it will become outside. You'll be around people who will be passing away, like I have been around my mother this past week. And when you're around someone who's about to pass away, you recognize that the body is just a shell. I mean, I've been in the room a half dozen times at the exact moment, at the exact moment when someone has died. And you, you recognize that they were breathing one moment, they're gone the next, and you, you just look at their body and you just sense they're not there anymore. Obviously, their body has stopped working, but something's gone. The body is just a shell, and death is real. And when you've been around that, you realize that, are you prepared for what happens after death? Uh, Jesus came to die for your sins so that you would not uh, have to face the judgment of the unjust. What about rising again? Our passage in verse 3 says, the Apostle Paul uh, argued, he proved he um, dialogued with them. He gave evidence that Jesus needed to rise again. He needed to experience the resurrection. And he argued this from the Old Testament scriptures. And I think what Paul would have done uh, in arguing for the resurrection from the Old Testament is he probably would have talked about David from the Psalms. You know, David says throughout the Psalms that God has ransomed him. He has delivered him. He has rescued him. He has revived him from Sheol, from the deep earth, from the abode of the dead. David, in the book of Psalms, said over and over again that, God, you have saved me from this abode of the dead where I would, might have stayed uh, for all of eternity or, or, or however long that was. Um, but you raised me, you saved me from that. And David 
hinted and talked about a resurrection. He, uh, Paul would have talked about Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who said that our bodies shall rise. They shall rise again. Paul would have talked about the prophet Daniel, who talked about that people will awake to everlasting life or everlasting shame and content, contempt. What about rising again today? Uh, what would it take to convince you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that you need in your life? I mean, it's a lot of people are not just asking the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And for a long time in the 20th century, we we're trying to prove that he rose from the dead. And we we're trying to give all this, you know, philosophical, apologetic arguments, which have their place in the Christian faith and leading people to faith. Um, and the scriptures talk about Jesus rising from the dead. But I just wonder, when you hear the message from the scriptures that Jesus is risen from the dead, when you hear the testimonies of other people saying that Jesus lives in them, when you listen to the apologetic arguments that Jesus has risen from the dead, and there are all these eyewitnesses to the fact, and men don't die for a lie, they die for the truth, and they died saying that Jesus was going had risen from the dead, at what point does it become real to you? At what point do you say, I not only believe that's true, but I believe it's true for me. And I believe I need that. I believe in this. Um, I think there are so many challenges today in the 21st century um, to kind of cut through the haze and cut through the madness and the chaos of all that's taught to you about what the resurrection, a resurrection is or is not. I mean, uh, this week... I was just on social media, and there's this really uh, well-known self-help guru who's going to do this massive event coming up uh, in, in the fall. And he's saying, hey, come to my event, and I'm going to teach you how to unleash your personal power. I'm going to teach you how to create your future. Um, stop living in defeat and start living the life that you were designed to live and be a gift to the world. And that is a form of saying, you don't need the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can just unleash your own resurrection. Um, I saw another video of a guy who's a very well-known um, psychologist. I mean, his videos on YouTube are watched by millions of people. He wrote a best-selling book uh, over the past year. And uh, when they asked him, some Christians asked him, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? His answer was this. Well, I believe in the importance of a resurrection for individuals in the sense that we must all let go of our past selves. We must all let go of the negative, unhealthy ways of thinking and patterns of behavior that are bad for us. And so we need to be resurrected. There needs to be a new us that's released from that. And so in that sense, he would say he believes in a resurrection. Um, you... Uh, can go across the internet and, and just hear people talk of the biotech revolution that's coming our way sooner than later about how we're all going to be our wearable technology will become our embedded technology and how um, at, within our lifetimes we will be able to upload our thoughts into the cloud and our personalities into the cloud. How within our lifetime the children that are born today will be actually living not only to the 22nd, but into the 23rd century because of biotech um, advancements and how um, there are multiple companies that are just trying to essentially eliminate the concept of death. 
right? And so you live in this biotech world and you wonder, well, do I even need a resurrection with that? And then a fourth, I think, challenge in our society is people, uh, even in the church, are trying to say, both inside and outside the church, are trying to say, you know what? Uh, we can bring heaven down to earth. There's a utopia, this, this idea that we can all just get along. We can fix the environment. We can eliminate distinctions between rich and poor, between black and white. And uh, let's bring heaven to earth and create the kind of society that God or that human beings would want that's utopian. And the more you start to buy into that and not to recognize that the world is passing away, that the only one who makes all things new is who? The one who created the earth in the first place, Jesus Christ, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And their provision for that is that sin has so infected and tainted and broken our world and ourselves in it. It has so defiled everything from our own souls to the environment, to our relationships with other people, to our relationship or lack thereof with God, that we need a resurrection from that. And just as mankind unleashed sin and death in the world through the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we have uh, perpetuated that as human beings, each one of us to this day, so um, our only salvation can come from a Savior who steps in from the outside to bring us a resurrection. That would be Jesus Christ. I wonder, when does the resurrection of Jesus Christ become real to you? Um, maybe it's like Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we, we really only start to grasp truth when we realize the emptiness of all the things that we pursue. Um, that in the end, they're meaningless. I think it's what also Solomon said in Ecclesiastes where he says, um, you know, the end of all people is death. And that's our destiny. And I think one, until you come to that realization where you say, this is all there is to life. This is all the meaning I get outside of God. That you may not be ready to be resurrected. I think only until you come to a place you realize, you know, I am going to die. And coming to grips with my own mortality and realizing I have no clue of what lies on the other side outside of the promises that God has given to me, um, that that should put a, a, a sense of holy fear in us to say, uh, why not make a decision today to make sure that my eternity is set and my peace with God is made through the salvation that he has offered me in his son? Um, do you need the resurrection here this morning? Um, in conclusion, Christ's suffering through his crucifixion and him rising again through his resurrection, death becomes real to you. It has to become real to you. Not just now, but in eternity. And Jesus said this. He says in John chapter 8, If you believe I am God, and I have been crucified for your sins. That's what he essentially said in John 8. He said, I, I'm going to be lifted up for your sins. I'm being crucified. Do you believe I am God who has done this for you? And he said, uh, if you believe that, you will be saved. 
And in terms of our life in the resurrection, Jesus also said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never, though he may die, he will live. And Jesus says, do you believe this? Um, Paul's message was Christ had to suffer and die on a cross. And God raised him from the dead. And this is really God's message to you here today. That uh, you have something in you has died. And it has become evil. And you need Jesus to come into your life because he conquered. He, he will put to death, finally, the death that lives in you, the spiritual evil. It will, he will break that stranglehold within you. Better than any meditation, better than any therapy group um, or detox program, better, better than um, any human effort to overcome what uh, is wrong with your life, uh, to rely on Christ who defeated death and who offers you forgiveness from a guilty conscience and his new life to come inside of your life, to give you the presence of God, the power of God, the love and the holiness, the peace and the joy of God so that his life living through your life through resurrected Christ. You know, this week, as I was sitting with my mom, uh, the thought that went through my mind, even though she's she's 83, she's incapacitated, but in some ways she's never been more beautiful to me. Um, because as I sat there and I, every time I visit my mom now, I think, you know, this might be the last time. And I'm, I'm preparing myself for that. I, I, I look at her and say, you know, her body is wasting away. Death is at her door. The Lord could take her at any moment. But what makes her beautiful is the life of Christ in her, uh, that she gave her life to Christ at an early age, and um, she modeled what it looked like to be a godly woman in the home as she raised uh, her children and uh, towards her husband. And I am just reminded that uh, when my mom does pass away, she will receive new life, not because she was a great mom and a great wife and a great friend to so many, but because of her faith that she needed forgiveness, even as wonderful a woman, I couldn't have asked for a better mom. She needed forgiveness for her sins. And I prayed that for her, Lord, this week. I said, Lord, thank you that you've forgiven my mom of her sins, that she's placed her faith in you. And thank you that you've given her new life in Christ. And, um, and I think that has given her peace, even in these moments when she can't even respond verbally. And um, the Lord is going to be faithful to her, walk with her, and she's going to be in a new paradise when the Lord chooses to take her. Will you? Will you be in that paradise? Jesus has suffered for you, not just physically, but primarily spiritually, to take on the sin and weight of the world, and your sin, and your evil and mine too. And he has risen again to conquer sin and death, so that he may live his life through you, and he may give you life in eternity. Have you made a commitment to follow him as Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul said that if you believe in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Have you done that? Uh, I pray that you have.